You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. We've got a great example in the news in the last week of a certain kind of Republican, conservative, blind spot, thought process, the, the way it works for them and the way it doesn't work for them, evidence of what I've described as that conservative GOP Republican Fox News empathy deficit or inability to empathize, to project yourself into someone else's experience. And we have just the, the, the greatest example. To add to the list of examples, Rush Limbaugh is for incarcerating drug offenders until he's a drug offender himself. Suddenly he sees the light and he's for treatment over incarceration because it happened to him. Republicans are generally against uh, stem cell research, uh, except for Nancy Reagan because Alzheimer's happened to her husband, so it happened to her. So she's a Republican who's for stem cell research because it happened to her. Rob Portman against gay marriage until his son comes out and then he's for gay marriage because it happened to him. When your kid was gay and couldn't get married – Fuck you and fuck your kid. Oh, but now it's my kid and I can suddenly empathize. I couldn't empathize when it was your kid because fuck you again and fuck your kid again. Fuck your gay kid twice. But it happened to me and so I suddenly have a feeling and I can see the logic. Megan Kelly, Fox News anchor, suddenly for paid maternity leave when she drops a kid. When she has a kid, she can see the logic. She's one of the few Republicans who's for maternity leave because she has a kid herself and is a working woman. Speaking of Megyn Kelly, last Thursday night, I was one of the many millions of Americans glued to the television set for the first GOP debate. I watched the kids' table debate with little Ricky Santorum, whose poll numbers have collapsed into the zeros since that night. Too bad, so sad, poor little Ricky Santorum. And I watched the adult debate. The 10, the the leading 10, the people at the top of the polls, the 10 leading Republican candidates. And Donald Trump, who is leading, he's number one in the polls among Republicans. He was center stage and Megyn Kelly asked him this question. One of the things people love about you is you speak your mind and you don't use a politician's filter. However, that is not without its downsides, in particular when it comes to women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account... Only Rosie O'Donnell. No, it wasn't. Your Twitter account... Ah, only Rosie O'Donnell, you know, because she's a, a lesbian, so fat, dog, slob, disgusting animal... We can use dehumanizing language uh, for targeting sexual minorities. The crowd loved that answer from the Donald. When the Donald said, only Rosie O'Donnell, everybody laughed and cheered. Kelly kept needling Trump throughout the debate, though, asked him more pointed questions about his flip-flop on abortion, about the numbers of times his businesses have declared bankruptcy. And she just really pressed at him, really pushed at him. And Donald Trump was – furious afterwards and took to Twitter and bitched and bitched and famously or infamously went on CNN the next day in an interview with Don Lemon and said this about Megyn Kelly. Uh, you know, she she 
gets out and she starts asking me all sorts of ridiculous questions. And, you know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. But uh, she was, uh, in my opinion, she was uh, off base. Okay, this blood coming out of Megan Kelly's wherever she was tough. She was mean to me. She asked me a lot of pointed questions. Must be on the rag. Later, Donald Trump insisted that by wherever he meant nose. So he was swapping out the, a three-syllable word wherever for a one-syllable word nose. Blood coming out of her eyes and her wherever. Could have just said nose if you meant nose. This brought just swift condemnation from all the other Republicans running for president. You'll recall that when Donald Trump announced that he was running for president, he said that all Mexicans coming across the border, all the illegal immigrants were rapists. And this did not engender swift condemnation from all the other Republicans running for president, not even from Jeb Bush, who took weeks to get around to condemning those remarks, even though he's married to a Mexican immigrant. But this, this attack on Megyn Kelly, personally, the suggestion that she is unprofessional or that she was on the rag that night at the debate. Otherwise, why would she be mean to lovely, charming Donald Trump? This could not stand. Donald Trump was disinvited from some bullshit conservative confab last weekend by a noted sexist, homophobic pig, Eric Erickson, because of the horrible, the horrible thing he said about Megan, about poor Megan Kelly. He attacked this one Republican and everybody's just very upset and sad. And we have to condemn it because to attack Megyn Kelly this way, rhetorically, this cannot stand. This sexism, it's so sexist what Donald Trump said about Megyn Kelly. Which brings us back to the Republican debate on Thursday night, which brings me back to some of the other things that Megyn Kelly asked of some of the other candidates that nobody seems to be very upset about or concerned about or even think is very interesting this attack on just Megyn Kelly by Donald Trump. But listen to this. Listen to this question that Megyn Kelly put to Scott Walker at the Republican debate on Thursday night. Governor Walker, you've consistently said that you want to make abortion illegal, even in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. You recently signed an abortion law in Wisconsin that does have an exception for the mother's life, but you are on record as having objected to it. Would you really let a mother die rather than have an abortion? And with 83% of the American public in favor of a life exception, are you two out of the mainstream on this issue to win the general election? Well, I'm, I'm pro-life. I've always been pro-life. And I've got a position I think is consistent with many Americans out there in that, in that I believe that that is an unborn child that's in need of protection out there. And I've said many a time that that unborn child can be protected, and there are many other alternatives. That okay, Walker goes on a little bit longer, but he doesn't he he avoids he sidesteps Megan Kelly's question would you really let a mother die rather than have an abortion and the answer to that question by dint of Walker's non-answer would appear to be yes yes Scott Walker would let a mother die let a woman who needed an abortion to save her life die rather than allowing her to have that abortion no exception for the life of the mother because Scott Walker is pro some lives and anti others Pro-fetal lives, anti-women's lives. Later in the debate, Kelly asks Marco Rubio this. You favor a rape and incest exception to abortion bans. Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York just said yesterday those exceptions are preposterous. He said they discriminate against an entire class of human beings. 
If you believe that life begins at conception, as you say you do, how do you justify ending a life just because it begins violently through no fault of the baby? Well, Megan, first of all, I'm not sure that that's a correct assessment of my record. I would go on to add that I believe all you don't favor a rape and an incest. I have never said that and I have never advocated that. Okay, there's Marco Rubio saying that he has never supported exceptions on abortion bans for rape and incest survivors. So here you have Marco Rubio hard on the heels of Scott Walker saying women should die, that a woman should be allowed to die rather than provided with a life-saving abortion. You have Marco Rubio following up with women should have to carry their rapists' babies to term. Women should be legally compelled to give birth to their rapists' babies. And nothing, a big fat nothing. Because why? Because Walker and Rubio just attacked all American women. And Republicans can give a shit about all American women. They didn't make the mistake of attacking Megan American woman Kelly. So the Republican empathy gap usually works like this, the empathy deficit. I don't give a shit about X until X happens to me. This Megan Kelly thing is a Republican empathy exception of a slightly broader sort. We don't give a shit about sexism until it happens to one of us. Rape? Incest? Desperately needing an abortion to save your life? Ah, that's not going to happen to one of us, is it? That's not like Donald Trump saying something mean about poor Megan Kelly. That's not the kind of sexism, potentially lethal sexism that we need to concern ourselves with. Because all American women, 53% of the electorate, fuck them. Fuck them. Republican women don't need abortions, don't want abortions, don't seek them out. Would never be in a situation where they might require an abortion. Just like a Republican son of a senator would never be in a position where he might require a gay marriage. Until one is and then Rob Portman comes around. This thing actually happened to Megyn Kelly. These sexist things that Donald Trump said about her. And she is a very specific individual that Republicans have a lot of affection for. These things, rape, incest, needing a life-saving abortion, they happen to American women all the time, all too often. They don't give a shit about that. They don't give a shit about these nameless, faceless American women who have been raped, who have been victims of incest, who desperately need a life-saving abortion. Don't give a shit. Cannot empathize for women in these desperate situations. No empathy at all. Oh, but we can empathize with poor Megyn Kelly, the sexist, horrible thing that Donald Trump said about her. But we're not going to give a shit about the sexist, horrible things that are not just being said but being done and the worse things that Republicans would like to see done to all American women. No scandal there. No backlash there. Backlash against – that's what they're calling it, the backlash against Donald Trump in the wake of the Megyn Kelly gate scandal. No backlash here. No backlash against Walker and Rubio or the eight other men who stood on that stage when they said they would let American women die rather than see them get abortions and they would force American women to carry their rapist babies to term. The eight other Republican men on the stage, nobody objected. Nobody spoke up. Nobody said one fucking word. No empathy, no outrage. And if there's any justice and if I have anything to say about it, the Walker Rubio statements and the silent complicity of the other eight shit stains on that stage, the Republican national debate, this is what we are going to be talking about as the election approaches after Donald Trump is forgotten and a footnote in this election cycle.
Okay, we're going to talk about this subject again on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast with our guest, Slate and Rolling Stones, Amanda Marcotte. But first, and now, your calls. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 23-year-old lesbian female. My question is, I'm all for equality for everyone, absolutely everyone. I think everyone should be happy at doing things that are healthy for them, that make them happy. And I'm really open, but I'm having trouble understanding kinks. And I really want to understand because, you know, I am open and I don't want to feel that I'm being not open. But I guess my question is, how can something that is, you know, demeaning or like, please step on me with shoes or defecate on me or, you know, things that I would consider to be demeaning, how can that really truly be an expression of love? Like, if you're trying to express that you care about someone, why would you ask them to do something that is essentially, like, embarrassing or painful and, like, just how can that be truly next to love? And so I would just really like to hear what you think about this because I want to be open and supportive of people who are kinky or, or whatever, but I just... I don't know how it's emotionally, mentally, you know, positive. I don't get it. You know what I don't understand? I don't understand cunnilingus. I don't understand how anyone could do that or want to do it. And there you are, a lesbian, and you do that thing. And I just don't understand how anyone could ask someone they love to do that thing that does not appeal to me at all. How could you ask someone to do that? If you asked me to do it, I would be heartbroken and I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't want to do it. Maybe if I was in love with you and you insisted, I might under a kind of emotional duress consent to it and do it and feel awful afterwards because I was doing something I didn't really want to do. But here's the thing. You don't ask gay men to eat your pussy because you're a lesbian and you sleep with lesbians who want to eat your pussy and it's their favorite thing and they're excited about it. Right? I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume that's the way you conduct your private life. And the same goes for kinksters and people in the BDSM. Thank God for the internet. It's made it so much easier for people to find the lid, the kinky lid, for their kinky pot. To find people who are into what they're into, who are a match. So they're not asking someone to do something they don't want to do. They're asking someone to do something that they very much Enjoy doing and it may look to someone who isn't into it off-putting or degrading or disgusting just as cunnilingus may look like that to me but they don't experience it that way. And there is new and uh, ever more scientific research showing that people who are into BDSM who practice it are just as healthy by some measures healthier than people who don't. That doesn't mean you take a sad person, you give them whips and chains and a kinky partner and they turn into a happy person. That means somebody who has these desires, who's incorporated them to their life in a functional and healthy way is a better adjusted, happier, healthier, more self-actualized person. They're actually doing the things, experiencing the things that they want to experience. And they are happy because of that. Who wouldn't be happy if their life, their sex life, included the things that they were turned out on by and that they wanted to do? And when you look at somebody's kinks and you see degradation and you see pain and you see humiliation, yeah, no. That's like looking at two kids playing cops and robbers and seeing grand larceny, right? It's a game. They're playing a game. They're, they're, they're enacting these roles, as I've said a million times on this show. 
BDSM, kinky sex, cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off and orgasm. What's not to love? And these days you even have couples counselors pointing to the way kinky people, the way serious hardcore kinksters run their sex lives and holding it up as an example for vanilla couples who are disconnected sexually, who aren't having a lot of sex. Because one of the things that the kinksters do is they plan sex in advance and they schedule sex. If you're going to have sex at a dungeon party, if you're going to have people over for a kinky sex event, if you're going to have some sort of kinky three-way or four-way, that requires advanced planning. That requires saying, hey, Friday night, we're going here, we're doing this, this, and this. And the anticipation of that is exciting. And then the pulling it off and sticking it in is exciting as well. But you have a lot of vanilla people saying, oh, you shouldn't have to schedule sex. We're not having a lot of sex, but it, you know, it destroys the mood and uh, the spontaneity if we schedule it. And you have these sex counselors in strength saying, no, 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 vanilla people, look at what the kinky people are doing. It works really well. It, it, it is good for their relationships. It's good for their sex lives. It keeps them connected. You should do what they do, not have the kinky sex that doesn't turn you on, that you're not interested in, but go ahead and schedule and then be excited in anticipation of the sex happening that Friday night. So, you know, rounding back to your question, you know, how are you supposed to feel about it? You don't have to feel anything about it. All you have to feel about it is, hey, I'm glad that there are people out there who get to do the things that they like to do, that turn them on with people who are turned on by those things. Just like I'm glad for you that you get to do that cunnilingus thing that turns you on with other people, with women who are turned on by doing that cunnilingus thing with you, that cunnilingus thing that I have no interest in doing myself. But I'm happy for you that you get to do it with somebody else, not me. And that's what you should feel about kink and BDSM. You don't have to understand. You clearly don't understand it. You don't really have to understand it. Be reassured that it's not self-destructive behavior. Be reassured that people doing it who are happy and healthy and who are doing it with people who want to do it with them, that it's good and constructive and, and non-harmful. Just like people who are doing vanilla sex with someone that they like and want to be having that sex with, who likes them and wants to be having that sex with them, is non-harmful. Vanilla sex, plain old boring vanilla sex, that's coerced or under duress or forced is unhealthy and destructive, right? Somebody having vanilla intercourse with someone they don't want to be having it with for whatever reason, that's not going to be good vanilla sex. That's going to be degrading and that's going to be humiliating. Even if I showed you a snapshot of it and all you saw was plain old boring vanilla sex, I would show you that snapshot and you would go, that's healthy, good, loving sex. And then I would show you a snapshot of some hardcore BDSM scene and you would go, oh, that's degrading and humiliating and horrible. And then I would tell you the people having the hardcore BDSM sex in this photograph, happy to be there. They like each other. They're having a blast. These two people in this vanilla sex, one of them doesn't want to be there. One of them is being assaulted. One of them is miserable. So you just don't know by looking at the snapshot or imagining it, because I assume you're not looking at a lot of BDSM porn, you can't know what's going on. So be content. People get to do what they want to do, hopefully, in all cases, vanilla or kink, with people who want to do those things with them. And you don't have to do them yourself, just like I don't have to do the cunnilingus myself either, although I will defend to the death your right to do that cunnilingus thing that you enjoy so much. 
Hi, Dan. Late 20s street male with a question about S&M Dirty Talk. My girlfriend and I really like S&M. Uh, we take turns being dominant. When I'm in the dominant role, she likes me to call her things like whore or slut or cunt. These are things I'd never say in any other context but in role play. It's all in good fun. The trouble is, when she's being dominant, she doesn't know what to call me. Uh, looking at porn or reading erotica, the things we most often hear are, you're such a little pussy or you're my little bitch. Um, but she doesn't really feel comfortable saying that. Um, even though it's referring to me as a man, she feels that it's degrading to women to make those comparisons and it squeaks her out. So is there something a forward-thinking feminist progressive, dominant woman can call her submissive little bitch without calling him a submissive little bitch. There's lots of things that she can call you that aren't necessarily gendered. Uh, you might want to watch some gay BDSM porn or read some gay BDSM erotica and you will see or read about guys who are calling each other all sorts of names and usually not sissy submissive bitch. Usually things like pervert, slave, slut, sicko, whore, because whore isn't necessarily gendered. Boys can be whores too. Boys can be sluts too, right? And if the point is to mock you for not being a man, she can mock you for not being a man by emphasizing not that you're a woman, therefore you're not a man, but by calling you a boy, which is typically mostly the word that gets thrown around in BDSM guy on guy porn. Somebody's the man and somebody's the boy. And if she's topping you, you can be the boy. And then it's emasculating in a way. She's suggesting you're not a man, not yet quite a man. Maybe you will never be a man. That's the conceit of that role play scenario in that moment. But you're some sort of proto man, partial man, not fully grown man. Enjoy. Hi, Dan. 24 year old Florida native here. First off, I wanted to thank you. Listening to your show, I was inspired to finally ask my boyfriend to help me explore my kink, BDSM. Since then, he's tied me up, blindfolded me, and spanked me. He's enjoyed himself and has even shared some of his fantasies that he would like to try. But he says that what makes him like exploring my kink is how much it turns me on, and that this is probably something he never would have tried on his own. However, since we started playing with this, I realized that I'm more into BDSM than I thought I was. There's a lot more that I want to try, but I'm not sure if he would be into it. He's been GGG about everything I've brought up so far, but because he's not into this for its own sake, I don't want to make him feel pressured to do something he's uncomfortable with. I'm new to this, so I don't really need a protocol here. I don't want to jeopardize this new fun aspect of our sex life, so this is something I think is important for me to explore further. This is the most secure relationship I've ever been in. We have great chemistry and generally communicate really well. I know that this is probably just a use-your-words scenario, but any advice you have to offer would be greatly appreciated. Yes, this is a use-your-words scenario. This is also a take-yes-for-a-fucking-answer scenario. He's getting into it. He enjoys it. Yes, he didn't bring it to the table first. Yes, this isn't what he was masturbating about at 15. But you meet two types of people at big kinky events, gay and straight and pansexual and queer and whatever. You meet two types of people. You meet those people who are jerking off about – their kinks when they were 13, 14, 15 years old. You meet those people who are tying themselves up when they were 12, 13, 14 years old. And you meet people who fell in love with those people and then got into their kinks and then it awakened something in them and they enjoyed it too and they grew in kink. And sometimes those people became even kinkier than their kinky partner that they met first. Even the relationship ends and the person who was brought into kink by falling in love with a kinky partner keeps going. In kink land, keeps exploring those kinks, keeps going to the kink events and the play parties and having 
new kinky relationships. Take fucking yes for an answer. He is into it. Let him be into it. And say what you said. Use the words you've already used on this call. Play the call for him. There's other things that you want to explore. You don't want to violate his boundaries. You also don't want to spook him or scare him off. And if he's not comfortable with these things or not into these things, you don't have to do these things. But you're interested in these things. And then put them on the table and at the same time ask him what he's interested in. He might have some kinks of his own. He might have some BDSM kinks that in getting into the ones you guys have already explored, he's thought about and maybe wanted to go to these different places. But right now he's just feeling like he needs to stay in the playpen that you've already constructed for you guys. He might have some ideas of his own. Just put it out there. Use your words. Give him permission to use his words as well. And take fucking yes for an answer. And take all those people at the kink events and play parties and Folsom and Thunder in the Mountain and everything else who fell in love with somebody kinky and got kinky themselves, got into it as a reassurance. Hi, Dan. I'm calling on behalf of my really good friend. And she is getting married in a year. And she has some concerns about his bachelor party. She had heard a story from her colleagues that like 45 years later, he confessed to her that he slept with two strippers at his bachelor party. And so she's kind of nervous now. She's 26, seven, something like that. And she's concerned that on his bachelor party, which he's planning to go to Mexico and go to a strip club, that that might happen. And she doesn't know how to can address that because she doesn't think it's okay for her to smash her tits in some guy's face at her bachelorette party. And is it fair that he gets to have tits smashed in his face at his bachelor party? And so we're just trying to figure out whether or not it's cool or where to draw the line or how she should approach that so everyone can have a happy bachelorette slash bachelorette party. What do you think? I hate bachelor parties. I hate bachelorette parties. I hate what people do on them. Not the like smashing strippers tits in your faces or motorboating some hot guy stripper guy's ass. I, I don't mind that stuff. I don't mind sex work, sex workers. I'm not, you know, as regular listeners know, I'm not particularly invested in or obsessed with strict lifelong monogamy. But I hate this buildup and how consequential and threatening bachelor and bachelorette parties seem to people who are going to have them. If she doesn't want him to have a bachelor party and is worried about what might happen at his, maybe she shouldn't have a bachelorette party herself. Maybe they should both disarm and not have them, right? What I hate is the pressure people feel under to go insane at these bachelor and bachelorette parties. Because what they're saying is, as I've unpacked before on the show, what they're saying is all fun stops with marriage. There will be no sexual adventure after we're married because that is the end of new things. That's the end of sexual adventure. That's the end of pleasure. That's the end of crazy nights out on the town with the boys or the girls. Marriage, it is the end. The end of fun. This is your last night for fun. It's the night before you're getting married or a couple nights before the weekend before you're getting married. You better pack it in. Pack all the fun you're going to need in for the next 50 years because it ends tonight. And just having that in your head 
And your friends having that in their heads, your friends who are with you at your bachelor, bachelorette parties, and then adding booze that encourages people, that incentivizes doing crazy, stupid shit that you might otherwise not or encouraging the bachelor or the bachelorette to do crazy, stupid shit they might otherwise not and probably don't even want to do if they weren't fucked up on booze and fucked up by this idea that marriage means the end of fun. So you better have it all tonight. Pack it all in because then the ball and chain, right? So my advice to your friend, and hi, I know you're a fan and I'm ranting, but hi, congratulations on your upcoming nuptials. My advice would be to cancel both the bachelor and bachelorette parties if you can't wrap your head around the fact that your husband-to-be might get tit smashed in his face. And if he can't wrap his head around you potentially smashing your face or having your face smashed – into the ass crack or tits of a mouse stripper at your bachelorette party. If you guys can't handle the specter, the twin specters of that, then you're not cut out for the bachelor bachelorette. You don't need that additional stress before you get married. But here's what I think you should do. I think you should have these parties with your friends a month after you get married. You should go out and have some fucking fun on your own with your friends, caller, lady getting married. And he should go out and have some fun with his friends and you should both go to uh, strip clubs and prove to each other and yourselves that marriage is not necessarily the death of fun or death of new experiences and that you both together can occasionally tear it up. That marriage isn't about ceding all freedom to another human being. That you get to be individuals. You get to do your thing and then come home and tell each other about it. Or maybe tell each other about it 45 fucking years later. I think it's very revealing that your friend is so torn up about this confession that this man made that to, to his wife after 45 years of marriage. That at his bachelor party, before they were married, he had sex with one or two strippers. And knowing this now, uh, presumably it traumatized the person that he confessed it to, the guy who had sex with strippers on, at his bachelorette party 45 years ago. And perhaps it makes the, all those 45 years of marriage, all that love and commitment, blood and sweat and tears and trial and joy, makes it all seem like a lie, like worthless, like a, like a sham marriage. Because this thing happened before the wedding, the wedding and everything that came after the marriage was bullshit based on lies. And I bet that's what your friend thinks. Otherwise, you wouldn't be mentioning it. You wouldn't be calling about it. That she now knows this about this couple that she's known for 45 years. She hasn't known them for 45 years, but they've been together for 45 years. Maybe she looked at their marriage as a model for hers, potentially. Oh, and now she knows that the dude fucked somebody else at his bachelor party, so it's all bullshit. It's all a lie. No, maybe you look at that and go, there's nothing about tearing it up at your bachelor party. There's nothing about fucking a stripper or two at your bachelor party that prevents someone or fucking a stripper or two at your bachelorette party that prevents someone from being a good and loving and dedicated and committed spouse. So even if your fiancé gets tit smashed in his face at his bachelorette or bachelor party, that is not proof he doesn't love you. That is not proof your marriage won't be good and solid and lasting. All that's proof of is that he got some tit smashed in his face that weren't yours at his bachelor party. Be zen about it. He's not going to tell you what happens at his bachelor party for 50 years, not 45, 50. And you're not going to tell him what happens at your bachelorette party for 45 or 50 years. If you think he's getting stripper 
tits in the face and you feel like even though you don't necessarily want male stripper shaved peck tits in your face, you're going to go get them just so you're even, then go do it. And then let it go. And then fucking forget about it. Pretend it was a night that took place years before you even met each other, before you even knew each other. Write it all down on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope. Have him do the same. Seal those envelopes and give them to a friend who's not allowed to give them back to either of you guys until, you, until your 50th wedding anniversary and then you can fucking read them. And by then, all of this will seem so much less important, so much less consequential. Because sex and tits and strippers and adventure and fun and all of that hopefully will still have been a part of your marriage over the last 50 years. You will have had adventures hopefully together with other people or without, you will have had sexual adventures. And this one piddling bullshit ritualized sexual adventure that you had or he had before the wedding will shrink in importance, shrink away to nothing in importance. Hi, Dan, calling from uh, Perth in Western Australia. My man and I are organizing a little um, orgy, as you call it, for a handful of guys, all of whom we've hooked up with before but I don't know if any of them know each other. Uh, one of the guys we know is nearly HIV positive for less than a year and has an undetectable viral load and we're always safe with him. I know he didn't only put another guy at risk once, as we know the other guy too, um, who's also, also at fault, obviously, for not being safe. I'm pretty sure they both learned that lesson. Uh, the second guy won't be coming to our little get-together. We'll provide plenty of condoms, etc., and encourage their use. Two questions. One. Are we under any obligation to insist on safe sex all around? If guys don't want to use condoms, then who are we to insist they do? And two, while I don't think announcing that one attendee is positive uh, is right, fair or smart, we are each responsible for our own sexual health after all. But are we causing trouble in any way by not disclosing what we already know? Should one of them have unprotected, safe, unprotected sex and become positive maybe? Uh, and it later comes out that we as hosts knew but didn't disclose. I hope you can perhaps shed some light. Thanks, Dan. Last month in July in Vancouver at the 8th International AIDS Society Conference on HIV Pathogenesis Treatment and Prevention, they announced the results of yet another study demonstrating yet again that someone who is HIV positive, who's taking antiretroviral therapy, whose viral load is undetectable, they can't find the virus in the bloodstream, undetectable, is essentially effectively non-infectious. Doctors are cautious people. They don't want to say there's no chance that someone with an undetectable viral load could pass HIV to someone else, could infect someone else. But all the studies really point to it being so low, so extremely unlikely an occurrence that others have rounded up doctors' caution to people who are undetectable are essentially effectively non-infectious. Could someone come to your orgy and get infected? Yes, if there are a lot of people at your orgy who are not using condoms, who are having penetrative anal sex, someone could very well arrive at your party HIV negative and leave exposed to HIV and wind up HIV positive. The person who infected that person, however, is very unlikely to be your friend who got HIV a year ago and is taking his antiretroviral drugs correctly and has an undetectable viral load. He is essentially non-infectious. The person or persons at your party that you need to be concerned about, more concerned about, are the people who don't know they have HIV. About a third of all gay men and bi men who have HIV don't know they have HIV. And someone who doesn't know that he has HIV isn't taking antiretroviral drugs. 
and their viral load is very detectable. They are going to be shedding a lot of the virus, particularly if they were recently infected. And they are going to be very infectious. So the person you're sort of focusing all your concern on is the person who really, if you're having an orgy with a bunch of people who are likely or inclined to not use condoms at an orgy, your, your focus is on the wrong guy. Yes, your friend who's undetectable should probably disclose, probably use condoms, but is probably effectively non-infectious. He is not going to infect anybody. Probably even if he doesn't use condoms, he's not going to infect anybody. The person who is going to infect someone at your party is the pause person who doesn't know he's a pause person. I would, if I were you, encourage everyone coming to my party to use condoms. I would encourage everyone to be conscious of the fact that not everyone who has HIV is aware that they have HIV. I would perhaps emphasize that people who have HIV who are on their antiretrovirals, who are undetectable, are not infectious essentially, effectively not infectious, but that everybody should probably err on the side of using condoms for their own safety and condoms will be made available. And if you rattle all that off, you don't have to say, that guy over there has HIV and he's taking the drug so he's not infectious, but just so you know, if you fuck him, Put a condom on because he's got HIV, but everybody else is good to go, good to blow because everybody else is negative or so they think. Your friend who's positive was negative, he thought, for a while after he got infected, no doubt, before he found out, and there could be somebody else in the room. And so somebody could, because you pointed a finger at the pos guy who's not infectious, walk across the room to the neg guy or the guy who thinks he's neg who is infectious and plop his ass down on his dick and get infected because he used a condom with the pause guy when they messed around, but didn't use a condom with the guy who thought he was neg, which is why I think at an orgy, everybody should use fucking condoms, but I'm grandpa that way. And not just because of HIV. We talk and talk and talk about HIV in situations like this. Gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, we should talk about those things too and condoms can protect you very effectively, particularly against gonorrhea. And there are super strains emerging of gonorrhea that are highly resistant to standard treatments that you do not want to get. Also something to talk about, if your friends are having an orgy, if you are having an orgy, if your crew, if your squad, if your posse is a sex positive orgy going posse, all you guys should be on Truveda. And the combo of Truveda for the neg guys and antiretroviral therapy and undetectable viral loads and effectively non-infectious for the pause guy who knows he's pause, that will, with condoms, ensure a highly safe and fun and crazy and loads blown everywhere gay sex orgy. Uh, hi, Dan. Uh, this is a 32-year-old gay man. And I'm in a new relationship. Um, it's going really well. It, it's the best I've ever been in. There's only one snag. He's a total bottom. And uh, up until now, I myself have only bottomed. I've never topped. So now I've been topping. Um, the problem is, is that I don't really like it very much. And what I want is I want to do the best that I can for him. Like I want to give him the sex that he deserves, but I don't know how to do that without such discomfort. Um, uh, you should know my, I, I, that like the, 
the sort of foreskin problem um, where it doesn't retract all the way. I am really like I've I've tried some topical creams. They haven't really seemed to help that much. I, the idea of like you know getting adult circumcised sort of terrifies me. It's not painful. It's just not that pleasant. It's fine. He's been incredibly patient. I mean, we mostly like thus far like most of our sex has, has been non anally and, and 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 it's been fine. It's been great. But I just I I foresee it not being a problem in the future. But I just I want to give him what he wants, and while he hasn't been pressuring me, I can tell that he would really like me to fuck him more, and I want to be able to do that for him. Even if you were to solve this problem with your foreskin not retracting all the way and how that causes you pain when you top your boyfriend during anal uh, sex when you are the penetrator, Uh, you're going to want to have a a good and mixed up sex life. So the fact that right now you guys are exploring other stuff, you're doing other stuff, that's good. And even if you got a circumcision, which you don't want to get, and you could top him all the time without pain, you're not going to want to top him all the time because that's not your favorite thing. You weren't really a top in past relationships. Maybe you're going to grow into it. But even if you fix this, I want to make sure that you continue to Enjoy a broad range of sexual activities with your boyfriend. You don't become limited by the fix, right? You don't fix this thing and then all you do for the rest of your life is fuck this boy in his ass. That said, you don't want to get a circumcision and you tried the creams and they didn't work. The steroid creams that people can use, uh, theoretically, they're supposed to uh, loosen up the foreskins enough that they can be retracted for people with this problem. It's called pimosis. There is – a surgical option in between circumcision and creams, which is kind of a little slit to cut the foreskin, not off, not to remove it, but to alter it slightly. And you could go to a urologist and you can talk about that option. There are also options around stretching the foreskin for which there are devices that look a little scary, little metal devices that go theoretically in between your foreskin and the glands and they push out and you can stretch your foreskin out with one of those. Again, talk to your urologist. Go see a urologist about this problem. Um, Even if you and your boyfriend break up tomorrow, even if the guy you meet next is a total top, you want to be able to retract your foreskin all the way, even if you're never fucking anyone else in the ass ever again. Go get this problem solved. Go do something beyond creams, but not quite as extreme as uh, adult circumcision. Hi, Dan. I'm 25 years old, and I've been with my boyfriend for about a year. And um, he likes to be a dom sexually, which which I really like. But he also likes to be that way in terms of relationship dynamics in moments. And sometimes I have concern that it's, manipulative and I'm not quite sure where the line is between that just being his personality and how we engage with each other sexually or if how to know if I'm being manipulated whether it be him expressing that he doesn't like something that I wear um not that he's like take that off but that he tells me he doesn't like it so obviously I'm not going to want to wear it around him things like that small things so when your boyfriend says, I don't like what you're wearing, is it with this like tone and expectation that because obviously if he doesn't like it and he's your dom, you have to go change because you dress to please him now? 
No, it's it's kind of strange. It's just that he he's very specific about what is attractive to him, and he really wants me to follow that. Like, it's not like he's picking out my clothes, but he makes it very clear to me, you know, this is something I like and this is something I don't like. And how do you feel about that? And is that the only evidence of some sort of creeping total power exchange agenda on his part? Or are there other things? You know, there there are other things. And I'm actually taking some time right now to kind of like write about it, maybe draft a letter to him that I wouldn't send and confront him about it. Because I do, I am realizing that there is a little bit of maybe some misogyny on some points where he just feels like he has a right to be in control. And really, I think it comes from a place where in past relationships, he's had his power taken away from him in really dramatic ways in terms of just what he's told me. And yeah, I, yeah. Just think that, I, I don't think that's how it works. I, I don't think that people develop a kink for power exchange or BDSM because in a past relationship, they were, uh, you know, dominated or uh, abused. So that that's, you know, a lot of people who are into BDSM or into dominance and submission or power exchange, they will feel they have to rationalize or justify those interests as something that just kind of happened to them. These circumstances, these incidents in their lives left them damaged in this way. It's sort of the Fifty Shades of Grey theory of kink, right? And the truth sure. is that people have these interests and desires independent of really their life experience. It's kind of random. And you, the example I always cite is you talk to somebody who likes to be spanked in an erotic context and you ask them why and they say, well, my parents spanked me and it was always very weird and I felt conflicted about it, but it was intimate in this crazy way and it just sort of became eroticized for me. And so – I'm into spanking because I was spanked. That's how people get into spanking. And then you talk to somebody who's into spanking, somebody else. Why are you into spanking? I was never spanked. And I was very found it very alluring, this thing that happened to other kids. And I eroticized that desire to be spanked. And so therefore not spanking is what makes people kinky about spanking as grownups. And people do this with their kinks. They like look back through their life and say, this event, this event, this experience, that experience, this is why I am this way. And what we know of kink and fetishes – and paraphilia is, is it's just random associations, snapping ons, and usually very early in life, usually prepuberty. So I would set aside this rationalization that, you know, he had his power taken away from him in past relationships. Maybe that did happen, but he's still into this, and that has, they, the two are probably completely unrelated. Okay. So is there a way that I can confront him about this in a way that he still feels heard and that I can still get across that it makes me uncomfortable at times. It makes me feel confronting him about it is really easy. You use your words. You (laughs) You say to him, this dumb stuff in the bedroom, dumb sub totally into it. Makes me wet like crazy. Makes me come love it outside of the bedroom. No, nah, outside of the bedroom equals. So you're not going to tell me what to wear. You, like there are these little like thingies here and there. If what you want is a slave, if what you want is somebody who's into total power exchange or you know blurred dom sub dynamics where it's very intense in the bedroom but kind of present outside the bedroom and that's erotic for both parties. You know to to be reminded of like the dom sub dynamic in the bedroom by having occasional dom sub moments in everyday life. Then you should go find a girl like that. I ain't that girl. Right. It's really that simple. Yeah. And yeah, that sounds great. And don't do. I'm gonna I'm gonna like make this about gender right now, and I apologize 
3.5 billion women on the planet. There'll be hundreds of millions of exceptions. Don't, and you might be one of them. Don't do this thing where you're going to couch what is a criticism. You're going to find a way to frame it where you're being affirming or it's all about protecting his ego or not hurting his feelings or, you know, making sure that this doesn't become a fight or something that might end the relationship. If this is something that you guys have an irreconcilable difference about, then you need to have a very blunt conversation that does put the relationship on the line. And if what you want is not what he wants, then it's over. And that's, you know, yeah. you're, da- you're dating, you're a year in. This is still the discovery process. And what you've discovered is there is this. Is this something that he can dial the way the fuck back? Because you guys haven't really talked about this explicitly, maybe he thinks because you like this in the bedroom, you want it from him outside the bedroom too. Mm-hmm. And all it's going to take is you saying, outside the bedroom, uh uh-uh. And he'll be like, well, oh, I'm sorry. I thought, you know, I just thought since you liked it so much, I was just giving you more of it. I don't need to do that outside the bedroom. Wear that whatever it was you wore. Knock yourself out. Sure. Yeah, you might be right. Okay, well, I'm going to talk to him for sure. Use your words. Just be blunt and direct. I will. And, And the reason people aren't blunt and direct is they feel like, oh, my God, if I'm blunt and direct, the relationship might end. But if you're blunt right. and direct about what you want versus what they want and you're not on the same page, the relationship should end. Yes. Good luck. Thank you so much for your call. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old bisexual woman, and I have been with the same guy for almost five years. I love him a lot. We have a wonderful life together recently. He has made a new friend um, within the past year, and I've become friends with this person, and I am very attracted to this person. I have a huge crush on him. I just want to grab his face and kiss him all the time, but I can't because it would obviously fuck everything up. But my boyfriend and I have had some interesting sexual conversations and experiences throughout our relationship that lead me to wanting to share this with him, but I also feel like it would fuck up their friendship and our, like, three-person dynamic, but I can't stop thinking about it. It's very present in my head. I want to make it better. Uh, Help me, please. What you should do really depends on those conversations you mentioned having with your current boyfriend of five years about... Whatever it was, you were very vague about it. Have you guys had conversations about three ways? Have you had conversations about the fact that even though you're together and committed, of course, you're both going to be attracted to other people and you shouldn't have to lie to each other about that? Or have you had conversations about openness at some point or monogamishamy? Depending on what kind of conversations you've had with your boyfriend, that will inform the conversation you should have with your boyfriend now. If you guys have had the very common to opposite-sex couples conversations about his desire maybe one day to have a girl-girl-boy three-way and you countered with, that sounds fun, I'd love to have a guy-guy-girl three-way sometime, then this might be an opportunity to say, hey, your new friend, if you ever wanted to have that guy-guy-girl three-way that then obligates me to have that girl-girl-guy three-way, that would be a good candidate. He would be my choice. And then see what he says. He might say, yeah, maybe your boyfriend is a secret cuckold or a hot wife or whatever. Maybe he's up for it too. And then you can gauge his reaction and walk it back if he freaks out. The thing about a crush is 
you know, the more time you spend with a person, uh, the less shiny and new they are. The more familiar they become, you know, eventually you smell their farts, eventually you see the worst of them. You've seen the worst of your boyfriend. You know your boyfriend as a three-dimensional human being, good qualities and bad qualities, and you choose to stay with him and you are still attracted to him and everything's really great. But your boyfriend is a complicated, fully human person. This brand new guy in your life is just a shiny, brand new dick object, right? And so the more time you spend with him, maybe some of that shine will come off and your sort of intense crush will fade into kind of a, yeah, I do him. He's hot. Or conversely, perhaps the forbidden fruit nature of this relationship that you can never touch him because you are in a monogamous relationship, default or opt-in at the moment, means that the gloss will never come off him. It will always be shiny and new because that can't have will blind you to his three dimensions, his good and bad qualities as you get to know him better. So I would ask you to think about the conversations you've had with your boyfriend and whether they left open honest, you know, a, a space for honesty about being attracted to other people, about sometime you or he having sex with other people together or apart, and you could throw it out there. You know, you have to take into account that this wouldn't just complicate your relationship with your boyfriend, but also your boyfriend's relationship with his friend. So this just might be a no-go. Your boyfriend might, if you guys can have an honest conversation about this, just toss out a veto. Like that would just be too weird. Like if it was some guy at work, if it was somebody who wasn't in my friendship orbit that I didn't, you know, whose friendship I didn't value, it would be less threatening. But this guy, that just feels like it's going to fuck everything up for me and perhaps for us. And then he's out. And then what do you do? You fuck the shit out of your boyfriend with the lights off, pretending that you're fucking the shit out of his friend. And you burn through it that way. Hi, Dan. I have a certain menage a trois problem. I am a singer and I travel a lot and I'm away and I have just had an incredible threesome with two bisexual guys. It was so steamy and hot and a fantasy of mine that I finally got to play out and it was incredible. However, as most of these very erotic hot things end, it ends awkwardly sometimes. And what's happening is basically there's always this one guy who's kind of left out. One of the guys is exploring more of his sexuality with women, and the other one wants to explore more of his sexuality with men. So we have this thing going on where one guy is pursuing the other guy, but that guy is pursuing me. And, of course, jealousy and awkwardness arises. They're both coming to me and expressing their annoyance and confusion and what to do. And I don't really know what to tell them, except that I think they should talk to each other and be honest, as uncomfortable as it is. However, in the meantime, I do have my sexual appetites, and I would like to to continue. And I also would like to sometimes just have one-on-one sex. Two dicks can be a lot at once. So is it okay for me to just sometimes play with one and maybe not tell the other? I just don't want to hurt any feelings and make anything awkward. Just so I'm clear on this, you're having sex with these two bi guys. One of the guys is there in bed because he wants to be with you. And the other guy is there in bed because he wants to be with that other guy. And I'm going to infer that the only way he gets to be in bed with that other guy is that other guy gets to be in bed with you. 
that this threesome setup is a requirement for guy more into you to be in bed with guy more into him. So what do you do? Well, I think you tell the truth that you tell both of them. I'm not going to be an intermediary. You guys have a thing to work out between you. You should be honest with him and you should be honest with him. And if you guys, you know, I now know what I know, but I'm not going to be keeping secrets and, and some sort of like confidant for both of you as you work through this crap that's about you two. So you two need to talk. And if you don't talk, I'm going to tell. I'm going to talk to both of you about what both of you have said. And also I would like the option of sleeping not just with the both of you together but with you one of you at a time. And if you guys aren't down with that, then I'm sorry. That's too bad. That's what I want. And it's a big casual relationship. You don't owe the guy who wants to be in bed with the other guy a three-way to enable him to be in bed with that other guy. And you are allowed to say to the guy who's more into you, I'd like to get together with you alone. You can say that to the guy who's more into the guy too. Three ways are fun, but I would like some one-on-one time with either or both of you. You have a right to say that and then they have a right to say yes or no themselves. But I feel like the reason you hesitate is you feel some sort of emotional or sexual obligation to the guy more into the other guy to enable him to continue to explore that sex and that relationship by taking two dicks for the team and you don't have to do that. You don't have to take two dicks for the team unless you want to. And you don't always want to. Two dicks are complicated. I know the feeling. So put out there what you want. Use your words. We're going to use that phrase a lot today and every day. Every time we do the show, use your words. Say what you want. And tell them both that from here on out, they're not allowed to say anything to you about each other that they're not also saying to each other. And if they tell you things about each other that they're not also sharing with each other, you're going to spill the beans. Hi, Dan. I'm an early 30s straight single male, and I have a question about uh, talking about non-monogamy. Um, I recently exited a great monogamous, uh, non-strictly monogamous relationship a while ago, uh, which was my first. It was a really great relationship, and we broke up because of extenuating circumstances that didn't really have anything to do with our relationship model. Anyway, since the end of that relationship, I've noticed uh, how some people talk about monogamy, and I've taken issue with how people talk about monogamy in general. I was wondering if you could offer me some advice. Um, what I've noticed is that some of my friends or acquaintances will talk, acquaintances will talk about people who are in non-monogamous relationships in really judgy ways. Uh, I was out last weekend with some friends, and they mentioned a couple they knew posted something on Facebook about polyamory, and the conversation really went in the direction of, like, I wonder what kind of messed up relationship these people have. And I also, you know, I remember one time I had a friend who talked about uh, uh, how a couple approached her uh, for a threesome and how, you know, squicked out she was, which is fine. But then the conversation went, in, you know, in terms of like, well, they must have like a terrible relationship. They're trying to, and they're asking other people to participate in a three-way, which is not something that I agree with. So this has happened to me a couple of times, and I usually find myself doing three things. The first is keeping my mouth shut, which makes me feel kind of dishonest. The second is launching into an academic lecture about how monogamy is not natural and how, you know, and how, like, it's really, we're actually really fighting against ourselves uh, when, we, when we participate in monogamy, and that just never seemed to convince anybody. And the third is coming out to people as non-monogamous, which kind of always turns the attention on me and my experience with it. And it kind of makes me uncomfortable, especially since when people start asking about my relationship and whether it ended because of non-monogamy, which they assume it does when it really didn't. And so my question is, how do I talk about this with my friends 
and how and you know because I feel like it's you know my duty to lessen the stigma on people who are non-monogamous. Is there a way to talk about this without revealing my personal history, um, or is me being uncomfortable with talking about my past relationships just something I should get over in order for the greater good? The most effective way to come to the defense of non-monogamous people or poly people in a circumstance like that for you is to come to their defense, is to say that polyamorous relationships and non-monogamous relationships can be loving and consensual and stable and long-lasting. And also, not that long-lasting is the only metric by which we should judge the success of a relationship, but you should also come out as having been in non-monogamous or monogamish or poly relationships yourself. That is the quickest way to dispel stereotypes, preconceptions, misconceptions, bigotry. When you are an invisible minority, you have to speak up. You have to self-identify. You have to come the fuck out. And that might make them uncomfortable. It might make you uncomfortable. But there's no overcoming these myths and stereotypes about Gay people or poly people or kinky people or sex workers without gay people, poly people, kinky people, sex workers talking about their lives and confronting the assumptions, including the assumption that your friends are making when they in a room full of people just start sliming non-monogamous people and saying shitty things about non-monogamous people. That assumption being we're all monogamous here, right? We're all good and decent monogamous people in this room and – that's a bullshit assumption itself. Sometimes people make anti-gay jokes and they find out there's a gay person in the room and it makes them feel really uncomfortable because they were being shitty to someone without realizing that they were doing that. Being confronted about that can make a person think twice the next time they're in a room full of people they don't know well before they start saying shitty anti-gay things. Same here for non-monogamous people. There are risks. People have lost their jobs for being out and poly or non-monogamous. People have lost friends for being out and poly or non-monogamous. So you can weigh those risks before you make a decision to come out. If you feel you can't bear those risks or the risks are too great, you can come to the defense of poly and non-monogamous people in principle. You can say, I have known people in non-monogamous relationships like myself. You can leave out like myself. I have known people. They're good and decent and lovely and charming and blah de blah de blah And you can still have the conversation. You can still speak up for the non-monogamous people you have known and loved without coming out as non-monogamous yourself. And that will help. But the most effective way to help is to come out. We're going to take a quick break from the phone calls to speak with Amanda Marcotte. She's a freelance journalist who writes for Slate and Rolling Stone. You might remember her from last week's podcast because I read a couple of paragraphs from a piece she wrote for Slate about the Planned Parenthood bullshit sting videos. And I wanted to have Amanda on this week to talk about it because there are more videos coming and I wanted to have you on. Hey, Amanda. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on to, to help my listeners understand how they should, if they choose to view these videos, what they need to bear in mind as they watch them, because apparently there's eight or nine more of them coming. Oh, man. Um, you know, there's five out already as we're recording this, and I would point out that every single one of them has employed extremely deceptive editing, often to the level of having the person on tape ask a question and then editing it to make it seem like the answer 
like basically quoting an answer to a different question from later in the video. Mm-hmm. So kind of cut and pasting things around. So it makes like people sound like they're answering one question when they're answering another. That, that's the level of deceit that's going on here. Um, you know, they edited some of these videos to make it sound like these doctors <clears throat> are agreeing to sell fetal tissue. But if you watch the full length videos, you'll see that In fact, the doctors repeatedly say, we do not sell fetal tissue that is against the law. And even if it wasn't, that's against our professional code and, and, you know, things like that. That it's only a donation, that all the money that's talked about is reimbursement costs for storage and shipping. Okay, so if the doctors are making it clear in the full-length videos that they are doing nothing wrong, nothing illegal, that they're uh, not breaking any laws and, and obeying their professional code and not trafficking in fetal tissue, why the outrage? Um, you know, I think this is just sort of a research. Basically, I think this is just all an excuse to sort of go back to the old school anti-abortion tactic of trying to gross people out by making them think about fetal parts. You know, um, for a long time, the anti-abortion movement was kind of getting away from that. They were trying to kind of have a friendlier, nicer face. They stopped calling the people that harass women in the clinics protesters and started calling them sidewalk counselors. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, they, they've been trying to come across as a gentler, kinder movement. And for whatever reason, this is a, re- a return to the trying to scare people by waving bloody feet pictures in their face uh, mentality. I'm not entirely sure why they've done this. Obviously, the anti-twist movement is a large and diverse movement in and of itself. So I have a funny feeling that quite a few people in leadership are not happy about this. They're just being quiet about it. Now, when you say they, the people who made these videos, they they made these videos, the people releasing videos, who are they? Um, So they're going under the name the Center for Medical Progress. Um, I think it's important to understand that this is a brand new and kind of Fly-by-night operation is the way I'd put it. Um, the people running it, David Daly Adin especially, is, are kind of in the same group of people as James O'Keefe and most importantly, Lila Rose and her group Live Action. Live Action was an organization that has been doing this for, God, for years, like a decade now. They've been making these undercover, quote-unquote, sting videos of Planned Parenthood and tapes um, that do the same thing, that they, they're deceptively edited. Often when you check it against the full length one, it, it gets completely ridiculous. They've made all sorts of crazy accusations against Planned Parenthood that have all been debunked, including that they engage in child sex trafficking. Um, <laughs> they, live action's name is mud in the mainstream media because they've lied so frequently, so often that it's, it's comical now. So it's no surprise to me that all of a sudden a new organization that has the same people working for it pops up. Okay, so this new organization, same people working for it, name will soon be mud. Name doesn't seem to be mud yet, particularly with the media that's credulously reporting a lot of this. And I'm sure you watched the GOP debate last week with the all the Republican assholes running for president who are calling for the defunding of Planned Parenthood, bragging about how if they were governors, when they were governors, that they did defund Planned Parenthood. And it does seem to have some political traction, and we're going to be dealing with the fallout from these videos for a while. 
Yeah, I think it's important to remember that this is just, this is part of a larger campaign. Um, as Scott Walker himself said during the debate, he defunded Planned Parenthood long before these videos came out. Mm-hmm. So did Chris Christie. So this is kind of a, an ongoing a- attack on Planned Parenthood. And it has to be understood in that context. So all these people standing around talking about how shocked and disgusted and appalled they are, they were already trying to do this. So it is not, this is all a complete dog and pony show. There is, there's nothing here that's even remotely sincere. You know what else I think people need to, you know, I watched the debate. Did you watch the debate? Oh, yeah. I, I'm still running in circles with my hair on fire from what I saw Scott Walker and Marco Rubio say. Scott Walker say, said that, you know, if it's there no, no exception, uh, abortion ban, no exceptions for the life of the mother. Megan Kelly, to her credit, said, so if a woman is dying, no abortion for her. Is that your position? And he re- didn't answer the question, which is to say yes. He's like, no fetus should ever die ever. And so you had Scott Walker standing there saying, let the woman die. No exception to save the life of a mother. Then you had Marco Rubio say that a woman should have to carry her rapist baby to term. And the other assholes, including the lone pro-choice asshole on stage, George Pataki, who bragged about being pro-choice but also having defunded Planned Parenthood in his state, none of them objected to to letting a woman die, but denying her an abortion and letting her die. And none of them objected to forcing a woman to carry her rapist baby to term. I was flabbergasted, as I imagined you were. Yeah. It's an interesting turn because for a couple of years now, Republicans have been trying to run as hard as they can, or they've been claiming that they've been trying to run as hard as they can from the war on women thing. And what we're actually seeing is a doubling down happening. It's it's very difficult to sort of wrap your mind around, and the only explanation that I have for it is that they really are just in the thrall of a, a conservative movement that has become more and more radical, and there's this train, there's nothing that seems to be able to stop it. You know, you would think that after Todd Aiken made those comments about legitimate rape and how that killed him in his Senate race that he probably was going to win that they would think about these things. And instead, it seems the strategy is just to push the envelope as far as they can to the point where uh, it just seems like the new normal. Do you think that those comments that Rubio and Walker and the silent dissent of the rest of them at the debate made, had did it have the impact that you thought it should have or expected it to have? Because I haven't seen a lot of chatter about it. I saw the piece you wrote at Slate about it. But I haven't seen a lot of outrage about it. I was outraged. Am I the only one? Are you the only other one? <laughs> I think, you know, maybe the maybe it's working. Maybe the just constant envelope pushing is working. I, you know, I it, it makes me extremely sad. I am optimistic in this one sense, though. I think that, you know, for years and years and years, I was dutifully reporting that the anti-choice movement that has the Republican Party in its thrall isn't just out to get abortion, that they are also out to get birth control and reduce access to contraception. And I, I do think that it's becoming more difficult for them to deny that this is all of a pay, of a one piece, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that... In that sense, the the radicalism has radicalism of the Republican Party has become the new normal, and at a certain point, 
um, there's this tendency in the mainstream media, which I guess I'm a part, but still I can say this, there's a tendency to sort of not be alarmed at stuff as long as it's not new. And this has kind of quickly become not new. And I, it's frustrating because now it's just becoming the wallpaper. Okay, you started that, 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 that answer by saying you were optimistic because, and we've gotten to a very seemingly non-optimistic place. Where's your optimism? What was the optimis- optimistic point you were about to make before you got derailed by how depressing all this is? <laughs> Sorry, I, was, I don't mean to be digressive or rambling. I apologize. Oh, no, 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 no. I, optimist- I, just want, I just want to end on an up note. I want to end with some hope. <laughs> I'm optimistic that finally, finally the public and the press has – started to realize that despite all the posturing about fetuses, this is nothing to do with life or a deep abiding concern for it. But the attacks on Planned Parenthood particularly show that this is really about women's health and reducing access to reproductive health care because none of the money that is being debated here, none of the defunding efforts that we are talking about of Planned Parenthood, none of that money goes to abortion. Not one red cent of it. It is all for contraception and STI testing. And that, that's a mistake. And that, no... That's something I forgot to mention last week when I was ranting about uh, Planned Parenthood and efforts to defund them and to, to cut all their federal money was that the 3% of services, the, you know, Planned Parenthood, 3% of what they do is abortion, the 97%. There's already through the Hyde Amendment a ban on any federal money being spent on abortion. So when they talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, it's not defunding those three that three percent of what they do, not taking any money away from abortion. It's taking money away from cancer screenings, access to birth control, health care, STI treatment. That's what they're going to cut money for, not abortion. Yeah. And so my exactly. And so my like thread of optimism is that the more radical they get, the harder it is for them to paint themselves as simply being very religious people who happen to believe that life begins at conception. And instead, what we're seeing is the the claws coming out. This really is a war on women, and it's it's very difficult to deny that it's anything but. Amanda Marcotte, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. And please don't apologize for being digressive. I am the most digressive human being on the planet. This show is all about digression. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Dan. I'm straight, and I don't fall for people that often, so I was really pleasantly surprised when I was on assignment in Australia and met this wonderful man. He warned me that he'd just gotten out of a long-term relationship and there was therefore was gun-shy about commitment, so we did a friends with benefits thing where I'd come over once a week and we'd have dinner and hang out, cuddle, and then have, like, amazing sex, like... I didn't even know sex could be that good. He just opened up this whole new world to me. And then this was fine until one day it hit me that I was deeply in love with somebody who clearly cared about and respected me, but didn't miss me when he was on vacation or call me up to go hiking, to down the couple stuff. And it's really emotionally taxing to want that and not have it reciprocated. So when I confronted him and I said, I can't keep doing this, he replied, I I understand, but I'm still so bruised from my last relationship that I can't give you what I want. I don't know if I'm in a state, I'm just kind of repulsed at the idea of committing to anyone, no matter how great they are. So we remained friends and we platonically hung out uh, during my remaining time in Australia and then I moved back to North America Well, I just got a job opportunity to move back there for 
Good. So I have two questions for you. One, when I relocate, should I wait for this guy to work through the emotional baggage he's carrying around? And if so, how can I best support him? And I suspect that you're going to say something like, yes, wait for him, but also date other guys on the side. And I can't do that because emotionally I think it's really, really unfair to be lying in bed with somebody and wishing I was with him instead. Um, and two, if I shouldn't wait, if I should just say this is a lost cause, um, then am I preventing myself from moving on by still masturbating to thoughts of him? Years ago, I said something in the column about masturbation that got me into a little bit of trouble. Uh, someone asked me if it was okay to masturbate about Anna Nicole Smith after she had died. And I said, no, no, that wasn't okay. Not because I thought it was disrespectful of the dead, not because you shouldn't be able to masturbate about whoever you want to masturbate about, but I felt that masturbation was an expression of hope, hope for the future. And so you should masturbate about things that could happen, right? Not about things that can't happen ever. I don't think you should masturbate about sleeping with George Washington or Alexander the Great or – Marilyn Monroe or Jane Russell in her prime because it's not going to happen. And But that's just me. That's just my hang-up. I think it would be depressing to have masturbatory fantasies about things that can never come true. I'm going to have sex on the space station with Dolph Lundgren in 1984. No, it's not going to happen because there was no space station in 1984. And it's too late, right? I don't think you should masturbate about this guy because it's not going to happen. You have to listen to him when he says that he's not interested in a relationship with you. And the fact that he conflates, you know, calling you and asking you how you are or maybe going on a hike with commitment, you can have a casual relationship with someone. You can have a friendship with someone, no sex at all, where they sometimes ask you how your weekend was or you go hang out and do something non-sexual, even if you're having a casual sexual relationship. He's not interested in any of that. He's not interested in any sort of relationship and he's telling you it's because he's just so bruised and hurt and wounded and that might be true. It's likelier to be a lie when people say that shit. When people say, oh, I would love to maybe date you but I'm just like, got a really bad relationship. I have a lot of schoolwork to do. I'm really busy at work. Da, da, da. Those are white lies. Those are people not telling you an awkward, uncomfortable truth. They don't want to hurt you. They don't want to say, I you know, dig you. Totally fucking into you sexually. Love to fuck you. Yeah, I just got out of a relationship so I can lean on that as an excuse. But I'm just not interested in you as a girlfriend. But as a human fleshlight that I'm kind to, who's kind to me, totally into that. You have to take him at his word. When someone says they're not available to you, they don't want a relationship. That's the part you have to hear. Don't take them at their word for whatever the excuses are that come after that because they're almost always bullshit. Face-saving, feeling-sparing white lies. And you just have to assume that they're lies until there's some evidence that they're not lies. And the only evidence you'll ever get that these are not lies is if enough time passes and he, his wounds heal and then he's emotionally available to you to not just put his dick in you but also to call you and ask you how your weekend was and go on a hike. So my advice, if you want to take the job, take the fucking job. And don't try to help this guy work through his emotional baggage because his emotional baggage is most likely fictional. Hologram bags, not real ones. 
And it's not your job to help him work through his baggage to make him fit to be your boyfriend. It's his job to work through his own baggage, if there is any baggage, and make himself fit to be somebody's boyfriend, yours or somebody else's, most likely somebody else's. And you should fuck other people and date other guys and you'll meet some guy who makes you forget this guy. And in the interim, I guess you can masturbate about him. A lot of people yelled at me and said they should be able to masturbate about Alexander the Great and Marilyn Monroe and Anna Nicole Smith if they want and Heath Ledger and River Phoenix. Okay, go ahead, you guys. You can masturbate about this guy, but it's hopeless. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I think you can masturbate about him until you belt sand your clitoris off and it's not going to happen. You're not going to get back together. That's how you, that's the assumption you have to run with. This is not going to happen because what he's saying to me is no. What he's saying to me is he doesn't want a relationship and to be kind, he's saying right now, but what you have to hear is ever doesn't want a relationship at all with me ever. And then move forward from there. And then he could, maybe he could pleasantly surprise you in a year or two and circle back and say, Dan Savage was wrong and I did have baggage and it wasn't a white lie. It won't happen, but it could, I guess, but it won't. And if you're still single then, if you haven't met somebody better, if you haven't met somebody you love more and masturbate about when you're apart, then you can date him, maybe. But I think you'll be over him by then if he calls you and says that, which he won't. Hi, Savage Love Cast. I was calling uh, to comment on episode 458. There's the 29-year-old in an open relationship with a, what sounds like a professional colleague who used to be a friend. And it just sounds to me like he's jealous because, you know, she, he probably was able to use the husband as an excuse why he wasn't able to uh, hit on her. So it's probably just hurt feelings. And he probably feels like he would like to be on her roster there. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the lady who was, freaked out that she had sex in the shower with her son in the other room in a crib. I just want to say good for you for having sex right after you are still having a baby. It took me a long time to feel comfortable doing that. My husband sort of insisted we have sex and even with a baby in a crib in the room. So I felt really uncomfortable with it. I think it's totally normal to question like when and where and how to have sex when you have a baby But it's important. I totally agree with what Dan said, that you are doing the right thing. And keep it up. Find as much time as you can to have sex. If you're wanting to do it, if you're horny, go for it. Make more babies. Hi, this is Susan calling from New Jersey. I loved your statements about Planned Parenthood and just wanted to say that for the past few years, I've been giving Planned Parenthood money in honor of my mother And I've asked my children to give money to Planned Parenthood in honor of me for Mother's Day. We've made this a ritual now, Mother's Day, Planned Parenthood, because every child should be a wanted child. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hump, my big amateur porn film festival, is on the road and could be coming to your city. Go to humptour.com to check the list of cities where Hump is coming and see if your city is on that list. And for information about submitting a film to Hump, go to humptour.com and click on Submit. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Amanda Marcotte on Twitter at Amanda Marcotte. And speaking of Twitter, Savage Lovecast listener Lisa Bartley tweeted out, 
paused podcast and donated what I could to Planned Parenthood the minute at Fake Dan Savage encouraged it. Thanks for the suggestion. Hashtag stand with PP. Thank you, Lisa, and everybody else who's all over Twitter this week mentioning that you made donations to Planned Parenthood this week at my suggestion. I appreciate it very much. Let's all continue to stand with The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian, who stands with Planned Parenthood, and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth who also stand with Planned Parenthood, and Nancy, who still stands with Planned Parenthood. We will all be back at you next week, still standing with Planned Parenthood. Thank you so much for